Amen. You can grab your copy of Scripture, open to Genesis chapter 12. That's where we'll begin tonight. God is is calling us to the cross. And when we we sing that, I mean, I don't even know how many hundreds of times I've sung that. There's no telling how many thousands of times I've led that song. And yet I would imagine if I was a worship leader, as I'm leading people and singing that song, other people, not you people, but other people, as I'm leading people to, in that song, probably as they're saying those words that he's calling us to the cross, there's a big smile on everybody's face, and they're going, yes. Because you know why? Because I guarantee you that 99.5% of all the people who sing that song are thinking to themselves, yeah, he's calling us to the cross. Isn't it wonderful? He's calling us to the cross for forgiveness. The cross, ladies and gentlemen, is an instrument of death. He's calling you to the cross to die to yourself. And it's totally countercultural that we, that we would sing a song, but yet we should be singing that song with joy in our heart, but with the full reality of what exactly we're singing. He's calling us to the cross. And that's awesome. But it's to die. Make no mistake about it. It is to die. And it's the most glorious thing that could ever happen is that we would go to the cross and die to ourselves and be born anew in Him. So as we were saying that, I'm picturing myself or I'm picturing a person being called to the cross and not just leaping up and running to the cross, but but slowly moving towards the cross and in fear and trembling and realizing... This is an instrument of death. You don't just run up there and grab hold of something that's going to kill you. It's like like being, like being called to run to a cobra. Man, you got to think about that for a minute. Well, I don't have to think about it. I ain't running to a cobra. But it's scary. And yet it's beautiful and it's amazing and it's redemptive all in one. So Genesis 12, we've been going through this series of God encounters. And basically we've been looking at various individuals and their encounter with God. And, and we've been uh, taking a, a sort of a different approach, a different angle. God's been uh, revealing to us uh, what His agenda is, what His purposes are, what, what's really going on when He encounters with people. It's uh, not, not what we've uh, grown up seeing on the flannel graph and not what is depicted in the... Christian coloring books, but what's actually going on, what's really happening when these people are being confronted by a holy and righteous God who's got this utterly counterintuitive, completely non-human agenda that he is bringing to bear on people's lives. And through the process, what's happened is he's used his word exactly as it's been intended to, to bring those things to bear on our lives as we've listened and learned through it. And so I've waited till the end to, you know, Ron asked me what, what I wanted him to preach on last Sunday night. And I said, whatever you want to. And I, I said, if you want to continue with this series, I gave him a couple uh, texts that were in my queue. And he didn't choose this one. And I was like, yes. So I'm grateful for that because this is the one I wanted to end with. We're going to talk about Abraham because Abraham is 
maybe the ultimate God encounter in the sense that because of the chronology that we have with Abraham, the, the length of time, you know, so we can pick these little moments in time where various people encounter God. But with Abraham, um, it's just this uh, amazing sort of span across his uh, life that we can just look at these various scenes and, and what is going on. And, you know, the, uh, Paul talks about uh, Abraham in Romans chapter 4. He talks about uh, justification by faith alone. And, and he uses Abraham because he knows that the uh, audience that he's speaking to in Romans is, is a Jewish audience and, and that they exalt Abraham. And so he uses Abraham and he says, you know, Abraham, it was accounted unto him as uh, faith, believing that he believed in God, and that was sort of imputed to him, that, that he was justified by his belief, not by his works. And Paul ends Romans chapter 4, if you've ever noticed this, with this very unique sentence where he says, this has been recorded not just for Abraham, but for us. That everything that we know about Abraham is very instructive for you and for me. And so we'll pick up scene 1 tonight. Genesis chapter 12, it's the first time God speaks to Abraham. It's not the first time Abraham's name appears in Scripture, but that was just in a genealogy. This is the beginning of it all. This is where God uh, initiates this encounter with Abraham. Genesis 12, verse 1, Now the Lord says to Abraham, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now here's what you need to just stop and ingest about this passage of Scripture. There's no warning. There's no lead-in. There's, no, you know, there's no sign that this is coming. There's not a giant star hanging in the north skies to illuminate to Abraham that, hey, something may be up. It's just another day. I don't know if it's a Tuesday or a Thursday or a Saturday, but I just know it's another day. And out of the clear blue comes the voice of God whom Abraham doesn't really know. I mean, we don't have any record of any ongoing, you know, uh, dialogue or any sort of understanding of just out of nowhere comes this voice. Abraham, pack it up. And leave everything. These words of clear direction and words of absolute separation. Notice how specific God is in what he tells him. He says, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. Exactly, specifically, all the information that he wants him to have, what he wants him to do, no more, no less, all sort of packed into verse 1. And what we're going to see is how God has this, maybe a sanctifying process. Maybe you could say this is a, an old covenant sanctification process. This is God's agenda in the life of this man, Abraham, to bring his faith to a place of greatness. And it begins with this command, this call, if you will. And, and this, is, uh, this isn't easy, but this isn't, it's going to get a lot harder for him. This is, this is step one. So step one is 
a lot, but it's nothing like what's coming. And what is God teaching us about what he says to Abraham? He's showing us that, like we saw this morning. I mean, you'll just have to forgive the fact that, that there's going to be a lot of uh, a blurry blurriness between Nehemiah 5 and Genesis 12 in the story of Abraham because they overlap in so many ways. God's saying to Abraham, Abraham, it's time for you to, I'm going to use you. In order for me to use you, I've got to grow you. In order for me to grow you, you got to, you got to let go of some things so that I can give you something else. You can't get something else until you let go of something. That's the way we grow. Isn't that how our life works? We, you know, we're born, we're a baby, and you know, we got to let go of the pacifier. We got to let go of the bottle. We got to let go of the diapers. We got to we got to let go of the toys. We got to it's a growing up is a process of letting go of one thing and grabbing onto another thing. Isn't that what it is? It's a never-ending cycle. Now, we could spend a whole sermon because this is what intrigued me as I thought about it. I thought about how why is it why does it get harder as we go? In other words, why are certain, as you're going along the, the, the growth spectrum, yes, it's, you know, sure, it, it, the baby whines when you take away the passy or, you know, when you start, you know, take the bottle away and you're, you're shoving that gross carrot mush stuff in their face or whatever you're doing. You know what I mean? It's kind of stressed out, but it's not that big of a deal. And on it goes. And even when you become a teenager, I was thinking about how, you know, when Colton was into skateboarding, that was glorious. That was every weekend in the ER. So he's skateboarding, and I used to tell him all the time, you know, he's, oh, Dad, skateboarding, that's where it's at. I'm, I'm, I'm always going to be skateboarding. I said, Colton, you've laughed at all the hilarious pictures of me skateboarding when I was a boy. I said the same thing. But do you know when the absolute last ever moment of interest in the skateboard is? The day you get what? Your driver's license. Who cares about a skateboard, man? When you got car keys, you ain't worried about no skateboard. It's not like you never see a kid with his driver's license going, oh, but the skateboard's got to go. I mean, no, they forget the skateboard. But when you get older, the older we get, you see, the less we want to let go of anything. Now, you're just going to have to process this on your own, and we're going to be here a long time tonight, so I'm not going to go through all this. But you think about it. You think about how as we grow, grow older and get more settled in life, we are far less willing to relinquish something. We become more change-averse. Hmm. And so the process goes with Abraham. Abraham, you got to let go. you got to let go of home. you got to let go of comfort. you got to let go of your family. you got to let go of all that, and I'm going to give you something else. And that's the way this is going to go. Now, what happens to somebody who says, no, I don't want to let go of that? You know, what happens to a young person? What, 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 do, you, what do you think of when you see a grown man rolling down the sidewalk on a skateboard? I think, loser. That's what I think. I'm just being honest. I mean, it's just my pet peeve. I mean, if you're a grown man and you play video games, don't tell me about it, okay? Because 
I have zero understanding of that. You just put away childish things. So if you, if you don't do that, then what are you? You're immature. What happens to someone who refuses to let go of something? They don't grow. They stay right there. And maybe other things change. Maybe there's some little changes around. But, but for the most part, what happens? They're stagnant, aren't they? Yes. And so that's why I think things like that bug me because I feel like they're indicators of other things. You know what I mean? It's just me. I should have never said that. It's rod at michaelmemorial.org if you want to email me. Okay, Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 says, I'm just trying to prove a point here. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Why does the Bible say that? The Bible is just teaching this principle that you've got to let go of one thing to have something else. That you cannot start a family until you let go of a family. That's how it works. That's the principle that God is sort of laying out. That is a basic foundational principle. That's like spirituality 101 when you get married. Now what happens to somebody who doesn't let go? What happens? It's a catastrophe. They don't grow. They don't thrive. They don't prosper. Because God says that's not how it's supposed to be. And until they let go, it's going to be a disaster because God says that's not how it works. And so he just comes to Abraham. It's very simple. Now that we're talking about it, you're like, yeah. You see, at first, that Genesis 12 is kind of shocking. Like, whoa, God, I mean, you're, who just bursts out of nowhere and says, hey, pack everything up and leave everybody? But then when you start thinking about it, you're like, oh, well, God does that. That's what he said to every one of you when you got married. Leave mommy and daddy, put on your big boy pants, and you can start your own family. That's the way it goes. You see, so if you think about it, you got to give something up to grow up. It's, it's give up, grow up, give up, grow up, you know, and that's how it works. God takes something away, you loosen your grip on it, you let it go, and then... You hold out your open hand. You're maybe not sure what's going to come in, but God puts something else in there. And so what God does to Abraham is he, he isolates him. He moves him away from all of the, the, the normalcy of life that's going to drag him away from what God's trying to accomplish in him. Now, God doesn't always do this, but God often does this. This is one of the reasons why I believe that prison ministry is so successful. This is the joke that me and Wade have that runs on every time we have a conversation about it. It's a captive audience. I mean, the thing about it is, is there's no, well, I mean, you know, you're not distracted by all of the things that you had at home. You may have distractions, but they're new distractions. They're different distractions. This is the same principle, and you know this to be true. You, you can take a, uh, a young man that the world says is, 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 cannot be reformed. He's too much trouble. He's broken. He's damaged. No matter what you do, he can't keep a job. He has no discipline, blah, 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 blah. And what do you do with that young man? Boot camp. And everything changes. 
Right? Yes. How many times have we seen it? But you know why? Because when you isolate somebody, I would always tell parents all the time that when they're at their wits end with their, you know, high school student, and I can't control them, they're out of control, I've tried everything, it's all a disaster. What do I do? I always say the same thing. You need a catastrophic change. That's what they need. You've got to obliterate their situate their surroundings and plop them in a whole new the shock of a new surrounding a new environment has that boot camp shock that God telling Abraham pack it up let's go you need to go somewhere else because I got to get you away from all these other things or you're just going to end up right back where you were did you ever wonder why you know drug rehab is not like you know, like school from 7 a.m. to 3 in the afternoon, then you ride the bus home. I'm just trying to point out the obvious. So he, so he isolates him. Because I don't want you to panic when God's, you know, calling you to open up your hand and let something go. And then you start feeling like, but it's lonely, but it's scary, but it's different. But I, I just want you to remember this sermon and go, oh, yeah, 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 it's okay. God does this. And then, then what's the other thing? He isolates Abraham, but it's not just that. He, he withholds from Abraham. Now, what I find most intriguing about this interaction between God and Abraham is the fact that God purposely gives Abraham the absolute minimum amount of information. God, why, God could have easily said, here's where you're going to go, here's what I'm going to do, but that's not what God does. And that's what we wanted. And so then I think to myself, how many times in my life have I prayed specifically against this principle and it's failed every time? You know that you all have been in this ditch with me. God, show me the details. Show me a picture. Give me some inclination to what you want me to do or where you want me to go. And it's, I can just picture God up there just giggling at you. <laughs> no, that's not how this relationship works. I give you what you need to know. You then respond to that or else you don't get what's on the other side of the rainbow. That's pretty much how it goes down. He doesn't give Abraham any information, which then makes me start to think about the relationship that Abraham apparently had with his wife. I mean, they must have had a a pretty uh, rock-solid marriage is what I'm thinking. How would it go down if you, sir, went, came home from work tomorrow and said, well, honey, start packing? She's like, what are you talking about? Well, we're moving. Where are we going? Can't really tell you. What are you talking about? Well, a voice came from the sky today. (laughs) I mean, is she just going to start packing everything up and get ready to go? Or I don't think so. She's going to go, I need information. But, you know, she follows him. He goes, you got to trust the Lord. He, He isolates us, and in the process of doing that, he only, he, we're on a need-to-know basis. He only gives us the information that we need to know. So, you know, and here's the thing. Well, why? 
Is that just God being mean? No. You know God's got a redemptive purpose in everything he does. What would have happened if God would have told Abraham, here's where you're going, Abraham. Same thing that would happen if God tells you in advance what's going to happen. You know what Abraham would have done? He would have focused on where he was going. And God did not want Abraham to focus on where he's going. God doesn't want you to focus on where he's going. What does God want us to focus on? Him. So if you don't know, the only thing you can do is focus on God. And so Abraham's focused on God because he doesn't know anything else. There's no option. It's not like, well, I could focus on this, or I could focus on that, or I could focus on God. Well, if you got zero information, you got one choice. Focus on God. And that's the whole point. So... You know, I was thinking about uh, that the weekend just before I went to Brazil. I uh, preached a men's conference up in Tupelo. And um, anyway, I got rooked into that by uh, the infamous J.J. Jasper. And he is the epitome of, you know, and I started thinking about this text. And I was thinking, you know, he really is a godly fellow, that J.J. Because he gives a person zero information. I mean, nothing. You know, hey, where, you know, he calls me up and tells me, okay, I mean, this is months out, you know, and I'm looking on my calendar, so we work out the dates and when we could do it and all that. He's like, all right, well, I'll be in touch with more information. And so you know how it goes. I'm busy. He's busy. We're doing things, all that. So like a week before, he calls me up, and he's like, hey, you know, you on? I'm like, yeah, but what are we doing? Where are we going, you know, and. He says, well, you know, just, just come on up to my house, and then we'll leave from there. And I'll... So basically, I don't know anything. So I drive up to Tupelo, and I get to his house. Me and Lisa drive up there, and I get to his house, and, and I drop Lisa off. She's going to stay there with Melanie and Candy. And, um, and then I'm going to, J.J.'s got to fly to, then, then when I get there, or the day before, he says, oh, by the way, I've got I've to drive to Memphis and fly to Iowa. I'm like, all right, so where am I going? He said, because I'm not going to Iowa. He said, because i got to preach tomorrow. So anyway, so he says, no, don't worry about it. I'm going out there with you, and then I'm going to whatever. So we leave his house. Now, I don't know where I'm going. So I'm just going through downtown Tupelo, following him. And, if, and you know, J.J.'s the kind of person where you're following him, and he's such a space cadet that when the light's yellow, he goes right through the yellow light. You're just like, thank you so much for that. <laughs> who does that? So, of course, now I'm stuck at the red light. He's gone to who knows where. I don't even know where I am, much less where I'm going. So, finally, I find him, and we're going, we're going. So, then we're going down the interstate, some highway somewhere. I don't know anything. So, finally, I call him on the cell phone. I'm like, hey, man. He's like, you back there? I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm back here. I'm here. Love you, man. I'm here. I said, hey, uh, I'm, I mean, when I left your house, I had a quarter tank of gas, but we've been going all over the place, and since I don't know where we're going, maybe can we stop and I can get some gas? He goes, oh, yeah, we're getting off at this exit. I'll pull in the first gas station, get some gas. Okay, so we pull off. There ain't no gas station. So then we start going down this road. There ain't no gas station. I mean, I'm thinking, what kind of redneck podunk? Where are you taking? There's not a convenience store. The only thing they got is electricity. I'm not sure they got indoor plumbing. I mean, where are we going? And we go in the woods. In the so finally, I call him up. I'm like, JJ. He's like, How you doing? I said, Well, my light just came on. 
Now, understand, he's going to Iowa. I got to get home. I'm like, how far is he? He goes, I don't know, but I think it's pretty close. I'm like, forget it. I just hang. He goes, well, what are we going to do? I said, here's what we're going to do. Either I'm going to get there or we're going to have a story to tell. And I hung up the phone. And we drive and drive and drive and drive and drive. I get to the retreat center that's all in the woods, uphill, around the mountain, over the... Well, I get there, I get in the parking lot and run out of gas. Which is fantastic. Because I got to get home. So... I go in, you know, I don't know anybody there except J.J., and he's going to Iowa. Isn't that spectacular? So I'm, you know, hey, how you doing? You got any gas on you? Hey, how are you doing? Do you have gas? Hey, how are you doing? I need some, I mean, seriously. And I meet this couple who works at the retreat center, and they live out there. And I said, you live here? And they go, yeah. And I go, why? And they go, well, it's real quiet. I said, I bet it is. I said, do you have a gas station? And they said, yes. There's one a few miles from here, but it's only open, you know, like four hours a day. I'm like, really? Seriously? It's 2015. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll bring you some gas in the morning. I said, well, I love you, so please do that. And he did, and I got out of there. But, you know, that's the thing about it is, is I was so focused on J.J., because I don't know where I'm going. I mean, I'm not looking at anything around me. I'm ignoring all the, 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 the and I, I've got to focus on it. Well, that's the thing. When you don't have any information, you've got to stay focused on who you're following. Scene two. So God then tells Abraham, who has now separate himself and isolate himself. God's isolated him, and now God's taught him how to look to him and trust him and focus on him and not think about other things, and so he's done that. And so now God comes to Abraham, and he says, your wife, Sarah, is going to bear you a son. And through that son, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And Sarah, I mean, she's old. She's barren. I mean... Everything's wrong with this whole process, but God says this. Abraham's, you know, okay, and time, the clock starts ticking. Because, you know, you go to your wife and you tell her, hey, we're moving today. Pack up your stuff. We're leaving. I don't know where we're going. You know, who knows what the schools are like there. You know, I don't, I don't know anything about it. There's probably not a Walmart. Maybe we're moving to that place where that retreat center is going to be bad. But anyway, just come on. We're moving. I, that's all I know. So she goes for that. But then he comes up. Oh, by the way, the same, you know, God who, who moved us out of Ur. Now he's said that you're going to have a son. And through your son, all the nations are going to be blessed and she's like well I'm barren and too old to have kids and none of this really makes sense but all the nations are going to be blessed so that's pretty exciting so once they sort of get their head wrapped around that they don't really understand how that's going to happen or what God's going to do but hey they're going to have a son which is great for somebody who doesn't have a son they're really excited about that but then what happens silence I mean nothing like Somebody comes to you and says, hey, I got something to tell you. It's the greatest news you could ever imagine. And uh, so just hang tight and I'll get back with you. And then they're gone. And then a month passes, turns into a year, one year, two years, two years, three years, four years, five. I mean, 10 years go by and nothing's happened. So they start wondering, like, I mean, 
Maybe we miss something. Maybe, maybe the, the will of God has eluded us. Maybe, well, maybe we, well, what, what would you be thinking? You'd be thinking, well, maybe I did something wrong and God took it back. Or maybe, uh, maybe that's not what God meant when he said that. Or maybe, I mean, if you had 10 years to think about how this thing would go down or what it's going to be, think of all the different scenarios you could come up with. So the thing about it is, is you can't blame them for what they do. They're just trying to figure out what to do. So after 10 years, it's pretty much over. Nothing's going to happen, so here's an idea. Sarah comes to Abraham. Well, you know Hagar, my, my maidservant? Why don't you just go with her and have a child? And so he does. And guess what? It's a boy. So what do you think they thought? It's the promise of God. It's a boy. I mean, it could have been a girl. She could have been barren too. A million things. He could have been barren for goodness sakes at that age. Anything could have happened. But no, she has a boy, Ishmael. So Ishmael comes. So what do you think they think? Here is the providence of God. Here's the will of God. Here's the reward of God. Here's the fulfillment of the promise that he told us. This is exactly how this was going to go. This makes sense. We've got this. All right. Praise the Lord. And they start raising their son. They're raising their son as if he's going to be the one who blesses all the nations. And guess what happens? He turns one, he turns two, he turns three, he goes to first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade. Time passes, time passes. When he's 14, then God shows up. Scene two. Genesis chapter 17. This will come up on the screen. 14 years later. They've been raising Ishmael for 14 years. God just shows up just like he did in scene one. No warning, no precursor, no forerunner, no fireworks, no star dangling in the sky. Just hello in Genesis 15. Then God says to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Now here's the thing. It was 24 years earlier that we had this conversation. Are you with me? God picks up exactly where he left off 24 years ago. Like he doesn't, God doesn't go, hey, remember that thing we talked about 24 years ago? Okay, well, here's the, he he just starts talking. God just starts rolling along as if, see, to God... There's not even been a break. To God, he understands exactly what's going on. God's plan, God's not miffed about this or this hasn't messed him up. He's just going right along. He's like, okay, now change her name and I'm going to give her a, a son. And Abraham's thinking, what are you talking about? You've already given us a son. I mean, we've already been through this. That was 24 years ago. And I will bless her. And she shall be the mother of the nation. Kings of people shall be from her. And then Abraham, he falls on his face and he laughs. And said in his heart, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? In other words, Abraham is like, are you crazy? This is insane. You know, so you, something's gotten mixed up about this. This, you, your will is tangled up or something because this is, this can't be right. 
I mean, you came to me and told me we were going to have a son, and then nothing happened. And so we sat around and twiddled our thumbs. Well, after 10 years, we figured, well, you forgot. So we figured, well, I don't know. What can we do? Let's do something. So we tried that, and bingo, we have a son. And then 14 years passed. So, I mean, any rational, sane person would come to the conclusion that, well, here we are. Everything's going according to plan. And then God shows up just as if nothing has ever happened, as if he's picking right up where he left off. Scene two just piles right onto scene one. And he goes, hey, here's what the deal is. I'm going to give her a son. He's like, no, no, that's not going to work. We've already done this. And then he laughs. He's like, this is just absurd. I mean, Abraham's a man of great faith. We've already established that. But he doesn't believe this. He's laughing because it's just absurd. It's so counterintuitive. It's so, it just doesn't make sense. How many times have you heard somebody say, well, it can't be God's will. It just doesn't make any sense. That's a brilliant statement. Have you ever read the Bible? Do you know the God of whom you speak? So he laughs. But then he says something very striking in verse 18. The next verse, and Abraham says to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. What does that mean? I think most people read that and they think that Abraham is concerned that God's going to kill Ishmael. But that's not what that statement is about. Abraham is saying to God, God, can't you just use Ishmael instead? Can't you just substitute the whole Sarah having a child thing? I mean, haven't we passed really any rational reason to do that? We have a son. He's perfectly healthy. We love him. He's 14 years old. I mean, he's our family. I mean, we, we've been enjoying life together for 14 years. Can't we just use him? That's what he's saying. Can't he be the one? God. Can we not do this my way? Isn't there a more sensible path? God, I realize that your word says this, but that just doesn't really fit into my context. I mean, in the situation that I'm in, you know, with my job, with my finances, with my marital circumstances, with all the things that are going on with me, with my children, with my, uh, my health concerns, my age, my, all of my, 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 all of my rational things, all the millions and millions of pages of notebooks you could fill up with all the rational reasons why God shouldn't do anything supernatural with us because it doesn't make any sense. And Abraham, this great man of faith, is like, can we just compromise here? Let's just, use, let's just use Ishmael. That's sensible. You know what Ishmael is? Ishmael is where your agenda and God's agenda 
smash into each other. Ishmael is where everything that seems sensible in a human court, in a human system, under human reasoning, and what God is doing collide. That's what Ishmael is. I mean, I could give you a thousand reasons why Ishmael would accomplish the same thing. I could make a great case. I could write a thesis paper. I could pray for decades. But that's not God's agenda. That's not his economy. That's not how he works. Ishmael is, is your vision. Ishmael is your agenda. Ishmael is your platform. Ishmael is your plan, your hopes, your dreams. Ishmael represents all the things that you thought you'd do with your life, the way, you're, the way you pictured your life being, the way, you, the way you set your course for your career, the way you plotted out how many kids you'd have, the way you strategized what you would do and, and when you would buy your house and how much money you would save and all your little human things that you do to put all the ducks in a row to make everything just nice and tidy and work according to your plan. That's Ishmael. That's what it is. That's what your Ishmael is. It makes perfect sense to you. It makes perfect sense to everybody around you. But if it ain't God's economy, he's not interested. And you say, well, that just seems so harsh. Again, you know why he's not? Because he knows what's best. In other words, his purposes are the highest purpose. Now, you don't have to let go of Ishmael. In fact, I would submit to say that my life is filled with people that I'm looking at across the span of my ministry who said, nope, not letting go of it. And so what happened to them? They didn't die. Lightning didn't strike them. They just slowly sunk into the quicksand of that place in their life. That marked the last significant growth spurt that ever came into their Christian walk. They're still holding Ishmael. So he comes to him and he says, No, Abraham, if you want to do it my way, you got to let this child go. That's the way it works. Just like you had to let go of Ur of the Chaldeans. You could have pleaded with me for a thousand years. No, no, let me stay here. Really, if my family needs me. Really, you know, my, my, my mom's not healthy. You know, my kids, they, they're in a great school system. I mean, you could have done that for a thousand years. Wouldn't have changed God's will. Would have had a tremendous impact on your destiny. But it doesn't change God's will. So God says you got to let go of him. you got to let go of Ishmael. Open your hand and give him up. 
You think that's easy? You ever, you ever sat, you ever sat in a room next to mom and dad? And their child's corpse? You ever, you ever been in a situation where somebody lost a teenager? They're just rocking along. It's not like, you know, it's not like Ishmael had a, some chronic disease and so they, they knew that his lifespan was going to be. He was just a perfectly normal, healthy boy growing up 14 years old. I'm not saying that he dies. I'm just simply saying that he's taken away from his father's hand. He's got to open his hand and let him go. It's hard. That's his son. I mean, that's that. he's an old man. He's lived his whole life long and to have a child. He finally gets a child. He falls in love with him. He loves this boy. His for, it's the apple of his eye. They do everything together. And then God shows up and says, you got to let him go. Why? I want to remind you that Ishmael's of the flesh, not of the spirit. I told you what I was going to do. And you got impatient. And once you got impatient, you start getting creative. You start, you start negotiating. You start hedging your bet. You start trying to figure out how you can, you know, how you can work in this in this situation to to get to the same result, right? Yeah. I don't know, I'm just picturing these Hebrews working on the wall in Nehemiah 5. And probably somewhere in their heart they're thinking, you know, it probably was wrong for me to, you know, take Bob's children as slaves and now they're working in my fields and charge them this exorbitant interest rate and all that. But, but as soon as they started to feel guilty about that, they said, but... We're accomplishing the wall. We're building the wall. We're doing what God wants us to do. And, and we have to do this in order to do that. Like if I wouldn't have done that, they wouldn't be able to do this. And so, hmm. So surely God's going to overlook that because we're building the wall. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, come on, God. The whole Hagar thing was, it's not like we were trying to disobey you. What was the intention there? Was the intention malicious? No. What did they want to do? They wanted to obey God. But since they couldn't wait, since they couldn't figure it out, since they didn't know, since there wasn't a light at the end of the tunnel leading them, they didn't have a road map as to where to go, they started strategizing. And so they did it their way. And so it's sort of the same broken record, isn't it? It's the, it's the, the life of the Christian counselor. It's, the, it's as the pastor's office turns. Husband and wife. Married X amount of years. Grew up in church. Fell in love, got married, no, no, no. And now 
It's a catastrophe. And now everything's falling apart. And now it's a disaster. And now, and when you start to unravel and start to go back and start to look deeper, and as you're peeling back the layers, trying to get back to the genesis of all this, when you get back to the beginning, what do you find? You find that somewhere back in the back, they did it their way. They started walking in the flesh. And now, and it works for a while. You can do it your way for a while, but eventually the rug gets jerked out from under you because it's not designed. You're not made for that. You are in opposition to the sovereign will of God. The flesh and the spirit are contrary to one another. There's a war going on. And so when you operate in the flesh, what is yielded is things of the flesh. And they're not of the Spirit. And things of the flesh aren't God's will. And so there they are. Genesis 17, the next verse says, Then God said, No, Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son. God, God, come on, please. Can we use Ishmael? No. And so he repeats exactly what he's already said. Sarah's going to bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac. This is the first time that we're introduced to what his name's going to be. You see, originally he was just going to have a son. He didn't know a name, but now he knows a name. Why now? What's Isaac mean? Very good. Laughter. You see what God's doing here? He's saying, no, my purpose and my agenda remains. But I'm going to give you a son the way I said I was going to give you a son. And every time you call his name, every time you refer to him, every single time you will be reminded that you laughed at me when I told you what I was going to do. And do you know what happened when he left that moment, went and told Sarah what was going to happen? She laughed too. And so your son will be called laughter, not, not as a slam, as a reminder. So that's scene one, scene two, now scene three. Graduate level encounter. We go from, you know, our initial uh, instructional encounter to our sort of midlife, sort of, you know, uh, uh, maturation encounter. And now we go to scene three, the high-level encounter. By the time we get to scene three, Isaac's about 17. You see, all these texts you know by heart. You know what I'm going to say before I say it. But it's the way in which God allows us to see these texts that just flip everything on their side, doesn't it? And so... He's, he's 17 years old. Okay, now remember, now we're on son number two, but son number two is now 17. So now, all these years later, you, you see these huge chunks of time in between, and then bingo, we pick up the story, Isaac 17. Abraham loves him. He's his son. But even more 
Then Ishmael, he's the son of promise. I mean, he's the supernatural son. He's the son of, 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 that came from him and his wife's union. He's the son that supernaturally was given to him by God. He's the son that couldn't be explained any other way. And so Manny's 17 years old. Life is good. Abraham is ancient. I mean, even in Brazil, he's ancient. He's old. He's probably 118 by now, something like that. 17, 18, 20, he's old. And everything's settled, life's good. He's got a 17-year-old young man. Isaac's doing good. Life is good. Probably if you met Abraham at this point, this Abraham had the bumper sticker on the back of his pickup truck, you know, that said, God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. Right on. God's just good. You know, his theme verse, he probably had T-shirts, you know, that said, God will give you the desires of your heart. I mean, that's our favorite verse. Everyone loves to quote that completely out of context, don't we? Sure. I mean, you know, you want something, just throw that one out there. That'll work good. Yeah, I mean, Psalm 37, you know the verse, right? Yeah. Delight yourself in the Lord. I'm sure Abraham was delighting himself in the Lord. Look at what God's given me. My 17-year-old son, life is good. Everybody's healthy. Everything's good, smooth, going along. All that's behind me now. Whew, I can rest. I'm in coast mode. I'm just cruising to the finish line. Some of you in here, you're, you think you're cruising to the finish line. You turn your, you, you turn your ears forward because the only thing you want to hear is a trumpet sound. Wrong answer. That's not how God works. Yeah, you delight yourself also in the Lord and He'll give you the desires of your heart. But you know what? Psalm 37, 4 doesn't do you any good without Psalm 37, 3. The Bible says, before you can delight yourself, before God gives you the desires of your heart, you got to trust in the Lord and do good. You trust in the Lord and do good and dwell in the land and feed on His faithfulness. When you do that, then you delight in the Lord and He'll give you the desires of your heart. You know how we do that. You know the Christianese. We say, well, you know, God will change our desires into His desires. But funny, that's never the context that we quote that in. It's always something we want when we use that verse. Just pointing that out. Then out of the blue, when everybody's happy and God's good all the time and all the time God's good and we're singing kumbaya, we're roasting marshmallows out in the field. I mean, it is awesome. Only thing I got left to do is die and go to heaven. Everything's perfect. I've lived my life. I've been faithful. It's smooth. It's coast time. It's all good. And then, boom. Uh-oh. The voice again. Really? I mean, at 120? Come on. I mean, aren't there some younger people you can be harassing, God? I mean, I'm just trying to remember which pills I've taken today. 
I'm trying to keep the little rubber stopper things on the foot of my walker, you know, from wearing out. I mean, I'm just trying to, come on, God. Genesis 22. Now it came to pass after these things, you know, after kumbaya, roasting marshmallows, the bumper sticker, the shirt, all that. God tested Abraham. Oh, if I'm Abraham, I'm like, hey, 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 how old are you messing? You've already tested me. I've already passed that. Not once, but twice. I've already done that. I mean, been there, got the t-shirt. I got the patch. Come on. I've won the Timothy Award. Can you let it go now? No. God tested Abraham, and he said to Abraham, Abraham, that's what you want. You want God to, you're 120, you've been through all this, and then you want God to call you by name. At least he didn't call him by his first name and his middle name. Then you know you're in trouble. So he says, Abraham, here I am. I'm sure that that didn't just fly out. There's probably a long pause between that. Abraham, mm. yeah. And then he said, take your son. You know the one, just in case you're confused. Your only son. I thought I had two sons. No, you had one. You know the son. The only son. You know laughter, that son. Take that son, whom you love. What a great kid. He's a good kid, isn't he? You got to love that kid. I mean, he's 17, never been in trouble. You know, goes around, been through all the true love weight stuff. Never misses youth group, been to camp every single summer, wants to be a missionary when he grows up. I mean, just amazing kid. You love him. He's a great kid. I want you to go up to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. What? What are you saying? How? How can this be? I packed up and left home when you tested me the first time. I let go of Ishmael when you tested me the second time. And now you're telling me, take my son up on the mountain and sacrifice him as a burnt offering? What kind of God are you? Who does that? Who says that? What level of commitment are you after? This is what I wonder. I wonder in this moment, and understandably so, how many of you in your heart, in secret, you'd never admit this, but just for a second there you're thinking, I don't want this. You see, he's a hundred plus years old. He thinks God's done. But God's not done until God says he, God's done. God's, you, know, you know how you know 
when God's done is when you're seeing him face to face. That's how you know. Until that moment comes, he ain't done. So in case you were wondering, in case that was just uh, uh, something you've been thinking about lately, I want to clear that up for you. If there's breath in your lungs, he's not done. And some of you are saying, man, I, I, don't, I don't want that. It's too harsh. It's too much. It's over the top. And part of me wants to say, I understand it's okay. But really, it's not okay. Maybe I understand, but it's not okay. But the sad thing about it is, is that you'd be in good company. Boy, you'd join the ranks of the multitude of people. You see, how does this whole process work? Well, what have we learned tonight? We learned that scene one, God comes to Abraham and he asks him to do something that seems kind of hard. But it doesn't seem hard compared to scene two, and it certainly doesn't seem hard compared to scene three. But you let go in scene one, and the reward is you get the opportunity for scene two. And then scene two comes along, and God says, you got to let go of Ishmael. you got to let go of your agenda. you got to let go of your plan. you got to let go of your idea. you got to let go of all the, all the things that you figured out. And all. you got to let all that go, and then you let go of that. And if you let go of that, then guess what happens? You move to scene three. But you don't get to three unless you get past two, and you don't get to two unless you get past one, to which you say to yourself, wow, I wonder why there's so many people sitting around warming a pew, and God ain't doing nothing with them. Because they're sitting in scene one. Because they don't want nothing to do with scene three. Because scene three seems horrific. Until you get there. The whole way up the mountain it seems unbearable, excruciating. Nothing about this makes sense. Nothing about this is rational. You couldn't tell anybody. If you even hinted to anybody what you were about to do, they'd throw you in prison for the rest of your life. I mean, it's so crazy, but you're going up the mountain. You're thinking, how's this going to work? What is this going to be about? Where are we going? How's this going to? I don't know. I don't know. And then you get up there, and then the moment comes, and you pick up the sword, and you have it over your son, and you're looking at your son there, and you're willing to go through it, and all of a sudden, God stops you at the last minute. Pass the test. Here's a ram right here. You see, God didn't lead Abraham up the mountain so Isaac would die. God led Abraham up the mountain so Abraham You know what I want to do? I want to go to scene three. I want to go as far as I can go with God. I want to see all I can see with God. 
I want to tread through the places that don't make sense. I want to, I want to live for the things that don't pay in this world. I want, to, I want to do the things that everyone thinks you're crazy. I want to just look at Scripture and say, I don't understand it. I don't get it, but God said it. I'm going to do it. That's what I want to do. And I hope that I have the courage when I get there to open my hand again. Because I've been to scene one. And I've been to scene two. I walked away from everything. Everything. With a wife and two little kids. Gave it all away. People with any sense are like, how are you going to support your family? I don't know. Came to work at a little bitty church as a part-time youth minister. $325 a week. With two kids and a wife. Moved on my in-law's property. Gave it all away. But after I opened my hand and let go of it, how long do you think? Do you think I want it back? Oh, no. Oh, no. Then years pass, and you're going through the motions, and scene two comes into your life. And all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're 40 years old. You've been doing this thing, and... And God's been blessing. You're building the wall, man. All the all conventional wisdom says, just keep plugging. It's good. God's blessing. And everybody's tapping me on the back. And everybody's congratulating me. And everybody's saying, you're doing a great job and everything's good. But somehow I know this ain't it. Somehow I know this, this isn't it. And then all of a sudden, my agenda and his agenda crash together. And it's like, no. Now, you're going to go to school. That's what you're going to do. You're going to be the old guy in all your classes. <laughs> Wait a minute, Lord. I'm already working 60 hours a week. And you want me to go to school? I don't think that's humanly possible. Maybe we can negotiate on this. Maybe we can work this out. Maybe there's a way. Mm -mm. Okay. I'll never forget going home saying, Honey, I'm going to seminary. She's like, When? I said, Now. She's like, How? I'm like, I don't know. She's like, well, how are you going to work? I said, I don't know. What's the church going to do? I don't know. She's like, you haven't even talked to the church? I'm like, nope. You know why? Because they're not the authority. God told me what to do. So if they don't like it, well, then too bad because I'm doing what God said. So I'm going to school. So off I go. I'm working full time. I'm in school full time. I don't know how that's going to happen. And guess what happens? Miraculously, it all pans out. And on the last semester of school, 
the very end, the culmination of the hardest thing I've ever accomplished in my life. All I got to do now is hang my diploma on the wall. And I can plan out the rest of my life. What happened? What do you think would have happened if I'd have said, you know what I'll do? I'll go to school next year. You know what I'll do? I'll go to school. I'll, I got to think about this. I got to wait it out. Let's, let's save money and build up a cash flow backup plan. Then I'll go to school. What would have happened? Don't you see the providence of God? Don't you see the perfection of God, the timing of God? At the very last end, at the very final straw, boom. Scene two. What about you? Where are you at? What do you think about God's agenda to build your faith? One last thing and I'm done. Way past time. Here we go. You remember that scene when Paul's writing to the Corinthians? 2 Corinthians and he has a... God takes him to the third heaven. And Paul says, I have seen things that it's unlawful for me to speak of. I mean, it's the pinnacle. The pinnacle of, of my experience with God. I've been where no one's ever been. I've seen what no one's ever seen. And what's the very next thing that happens? The Bible says, And God allowed Satan to buffet me with a thorn in the flesh. So if you're sitting here tonight and you're saying, I don't want a thorn. I'm not interested in a thorn. I want a coast. Go ahead. I want to see heaven. That's what I want to do. There's a reason why. Every time somebody in Scripture, it's a pinnacle. It's followed by a sifting. Because God is like, right about the time you think you made it, He said, no, there's more. There's more. There's more. There's more. And you say to yourself, well, well Pastor, how much can I have? How much do you want? You can have as much of God as you want. Because when He built you and designed you and knit you together, according to Psalm 139, He designed you and He fashioned your days. So He's pre-programmed you to be able to go a certain distance with Him. He's built into you the capacity 
to go through scene one, scene two, scene three. But you may just sit there with your fist clenched, hanging on to your Ishmael, or whatever it is you're not willing to let go. And there you'll stay. But I'm not interested in that. I want to go up the mountain. It's a little scary to say. But I want to go up the mountain. I want to, I want to be in the cleft of the rock. I want to see the glory of God when it passes by. I want to get out of the boat. I want to try to walk on water. I want to see the third heaven. I want to go wherever God has me to go. I want to do whatever God has me to do. Let's stand by our heads.